Oh God, like those wise men, oh, lead us, lead us, lead us. And may their response be ours, not just this Christmas, but every step across the uncharted journey ahead. May the star guide us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Speaking of those we three kings that the bells just play for us. Did you know? True, this is true. Did you know that the wise men stayed in motels on their journey from the east to the west? Absolutely true. Thanks to my friend Stan LaBianca, who is an anthropologist and archaeologist here at Andrews University. I'm going to show you some pictures right now of one of their motels. It's called a caravansary. The caravansaries were motels for the business travelers of the East 2,000 years ago. Underground caves dug right out of the desert sand. And uh, before I put the pictures up, let me just read to you this note that Stan sent to me. So you get a little bit of feel for what you're about to see. Fascinating. Hi, Dwight. Attached is an image showing the inside of an ancient cave, what you're about to see, located on the outskirts of Amman, Jordan. You know where that is. A city of the Decapolis known in the time of Christ as Philadelphia. Dating based on archaeological and epigraphic evidence, the uh, carvings inside, dating to the centuries immediately before and after the birth of Christ. The cave was located by Andrews University archaeologists in 1993 while conducting an archaeological survey in the region to the south of Amman. The cave has a panel in the back which contains a large number of Bedouin tribal marks. You'll see those. Drawings of camels and donkeys and the names of certain specific tribes written in Thamudic and Safatic, two very similar types of pre-Islamic Arabic scripts commonly used by tribesmen from the East 2,000 years ago. Two drawings illustrating how this cave might have been used by these Arab tribesmen follow in separate slides. These are drawings by Rhonda Root who is here at Andrews University, professor in the Division of Architecture. She is a professional artist. You'll see those in a moment. What is significant about this cave and its inscription panel is that it lends support to your point about Arabs roaming the deserts to the east. There is no disputing that these caves were used by pre-Islamic Arab tribesmen. So far, no one has attempted to search the panel to see if there might be any signs on it that could link directly to the story of the wise men. Let's put those pictures up on the screen now. There is a caravansary. That is a motel 2,000 years ago for travelers in the East. Now, Rhonda has uh, brought her artistic eye to that to give us a sense of what that actually looked like 2,000 years ago. You see that? Right out of the desert. That motel comes, comes uh, springing up and travelers would stop there, be fed, sleep, and then head on the rest of their journey. Inside the, uh, the caravansary, there are the inscriptions. Nomadic Bedouin Arab tribesmen uh, put those uh, um, inscriptions up there. In fact, here is Rhonda's uh, rendition of that. They would tell the story. They would describe perhaps uh, those who came to visit. All of that archaeologically now verifying that, in fact, in this Transjordan region to the, to the east of Israel, even our three wise men would have spent... Their days in those motels. You know, they traveled at night, didn't they? So they would spend the days in the caravansary, and then at night they would follow that star. We three kings. We don't know if they're really worth free. We really don't know much about these three, as it were, these heroes of the Christmas story. We don't know what they look like. 
We don't know the route they traveled, though now we can picture the motels they stayed in. We don't even know the quantity of their gifts. I have those three gifts right here. My friend uh, Conrad Dembski dropped by the office the other day and he said, Hey Dwight, look, here are the three gifts that the wise men brought. Very interesting about these three gifts, by the way. Did you know that 5th century Arabia, okay, 5th century B.C., Arabia, they specialized in the production. I'll I'll just look in in just a moment. They specialized in the production of frankincense and myrrh. In fact, Herodotus, the Greek historian of 5th century B.C., wrote that these two products, frankincense and myrrh, could only be procured in Arabia. Thus lending support, corroborating support to our previous teaching that indeed these three wise men were Arabs. You weren't here for the previous uh, two teachings. You go to our website and you can, uh, you can download those teachings, uh, podcasts, and you can listen to it at your leisure. So, so Conrad says, hey, take a look at these. I want to be very careful with these because here they are. Here is the gold. I'm not going to open this. I have no idea. Can, can, can you see that uh, on the screen there? Yep, this, this is the gold. There's the gold. And a little tag at the bottom of this. I, I opened this up to smell. It doesn't have the smell anymore. Don't, don't think this is 2,000 years old, but uh, this is the frankincense. This is the frankincense. And this one right here is the myrrh. Isn't that something? Frankincense and myrrh are only produced back in those days in, uh, in Arabia. Good. Thank you very much, David. Now, let's face it, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you, Conrad Dembski, for that. Let's face it, there there is so little we know about these three Arab strangers who came seeking Christ. But there is one, one, just one. And on this final portion of this Advent uh, series that we've been reflecting upon, I want to draw your attention to one significant and shining distinction about these three wise men that we may have never noticed before. And that is, hold on now, listen to this. In the entire Christmas narrative... In the Gospels, from stem to stern, the entire Christmas story, the wise men are the only ones. They are the only ones. Not the shepherds. God bless those country lads. Maybe some of them were older. Not Simeon and Anna. You remember those two elderly saints that would later meet the Christ child in in Jerusalem's temple uh, at his dedication. Not Jerusalem's hierarchy of the religious elite who refused to believe. Not even Joseph and Mary. This is what's astounding. Only... Only these kings, these Arab kings from the east, in the entire record of the Christmas story, they are the only ones that worship the baby in the entire story. Nobody but the wise men worships the Christ child in the Christmas story. Open your Bible one last time, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, St. Matthew, chapter 2. One more reading together. Part 3 in this uh, Advent series. Matthew chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible, grab that pew Bible in front of you. It'll be page 649 in your pew Bible. Isn't this something? They're the only ones. Watch this. Matthew chapter 2. Uh, we've read so many verses in this. We'll, we'll, we'll cut to the ending of the story. Drop down to verse 9, please. Matthew chapter 2, verse 9. I'm in the New King James Version, which will be the version you have in your pew Bible. And it'll be the version we have on the screen. Matthew chapter 2, verse 9. Let's read. And when they heard the king... So they've had this private audience with King Herod. We noted that last time. They departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Now verse 10. 
When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And that's where we hit the pause button last time. But let's, let's move on now. Verse 11. And when they had come into the house, watch them now. When they, when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, verse 12, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. The only ones, mark it down, the only ones in the entire Christmas narrative that worship the baby are these wise men. question is why. I mean, was there something about the surroundings of that baby that was a huge clue to the regal residence of this newborn? Anything in the surroundings? Are you kidding? Heart impossible. Joseph and Mary, I remind you, are still re- residing in Bethlehem's inn's stable. Now, I got to tell you, I have had a difficult time here with the Christmas narrative. We've never talked about it. I just, you know, once in a while you live with some of these questions. And you say, I, I don't understand how it fits. I'll be honest. Trying to somehow harmonize the obvious discrepancy between Luke and Matthew's two accounts. These are the only two accounts of the birth of of the Christ child. And I haven't been able to make them fit. Because in Luke's account, the record is very clear. He was born in a backyard cave. He was born in a manger where they keep the animals and that was a backyard cave. That's that's Luke's story. But in Matthew's story, which which we just read, in Matthew's story it says, When they came to the house... So which one is right? Was, was he born in a house or was he born in a stable? But then came my conversation a few days ago with Stan LaBianca. And I tell you what, my conundrum was resolved. I want to show you some backyard caves. Watch this. Fascinating again. I'm going to show you some backyard caves from the, from the Middle East, from Palestine. But before, uh, before I do that, let me just start this and then we'll put the caves up. Here's another note that Stan sent me after our conversation. Dwight, here are three images of caves adorned. And I want, let's go ahead and put, a, put an image up right now. So that's a, that's a backyard cave. All right? In the region of Bethlehem. All right? Uh, here are three images of caves adorned with masonry entrances from my collection of over three dozen of such cave habitations in Jordan. I have no doubt that the place where Christ was born was a cave, not a barn. Okay? We have no archaeological evidence for barns anywhere in Palestine. People of means lived in houses and sheltered their animals in open air pens or caves. Let's put another one up. Look at this. Poor people lived with their animals in caves during the cold months of the year and would move into tents or simply camp in front of the caves during the warmer months. In practically every village I visited in Jordan, you will find new construction hiding older construction, which typically involved masonry caves as part of a larger house cave habitation complex. Let's put one more up there. Look at that. The inn in Bethlehem likely, I'm still reading Stan, the inn in Bethlehem likely was such a complex, a house with a cave in the back, which doubled as animal pen and overflow bedroom for guests. Isn't that something? Archaeology confirms that in fact both Luke and Matthew are correct. It really was a stable in a cave out back, but because of the stone construction constructed structure in front of the cave, you could certainly and accurately call it a house. But when the wise men, going back to them now, when the wise men walk into this cave house, whatever you want, nomenclature you want to use, when they walk into this cave house, pitch black, there hardly was a shred of evidence 
that they are in the presence of royalty. Was there? I want to share with you a quotation worth brooding over. There, there's, a, there's a line here that I hope you'll take away with you. This is J.B. Phillips, the English writer. And I'll put it on the screen for you. No study guide today. Put it on the screen for you. J.B. Phillips writing, God's insertion of himself into human history. I love this. God's insertion of himself into human history was achieved with an almost frightening quietness and humility. There was no advertisement, no publicity, no special privilege. In fact, the entry of God into his own world. And here, here is what just has stuck in my heart. The entry of God into his own world was almost heartbreakingly humble. Isn't that something? Heartbreakingly humble. In sober fact, Phillips goes on, there is little romance or beauty in the thought of a young woman looking desperately for a place where she could give birth to her first baby. I do not think for a moment that Mary complained, but it was a bitter commentary. And the more I've thought about it, Phillips is absolutely right. It was a bitter commentary upon the world. That no one would give up a bed for the pregnant woman and that the Son of God must be born in a stable, end quote. Isn't that something? Almost, how do you put it? Almost heartbreakingly humble, the entry of God. It's a bitter commentary on our world. <laughs> would you have given up a bed? Would you have given up a bed for a pregnant stranger? Come on. So why did they worship him? It certainly wasn't because of his regal surroundings, now was it? Was it then that the baby... Oh, this must be it. The baby... The Middle Ages artists were right. The baby had a little shining round halo over his head. And they knew, that's the one. It's got to be that one. Was that it? But of course not. Let me disabuse you. If you think it is, let me quickly disabuse you of that notion. There was no halo. There was no distinctive ID for this newborn as God come to earth. Because you see, look at What was true about Christ... What was true about Christ in his manhood must therefore have been true about Christ in his infancy. I want you to take a look at a verse in your Bible. This is, this is a picture of Christ's manhood. Isaiah 53. Go back to the Gospel prophet for a moment. Isaiah 53. Notice what the Gospel prophet... Notice the wording he uses to describe the presence of... Of the suffering servant, the Messiah. This is Isaiah 53, by the way, it's in the uh, Pew Bible, it's page 496. But I want you to see this in your own Bible. Speaking of uh, the one who was Emmanuel, who would come to earth, for he, this is verse 2 now, Isaiah 53, verse 2, for he shall grow up before him, before God, as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. See? Nothing. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, we hid our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, there was nothing in the, in the physiognomy of Christ that was remotely, nothing about him that was remotely physically attractive. Ooh, I'd like to, I'd like to follow that guy. There was nothing in him. In fact, a hundred years ago, these words are written. Let me put them on the screen for you. Jesus labored constantly for one object. All his powers were employed for the salvation of men and women. Every act of his life tended to that end. He traveled on foot, teaching his followers as he went. His garments were dusty and travel-stained. And his appearance 
was uninviting. Not, not, not neutral. It was uninviting. Whoa, please. Isn't that something? And his appearance was uninviting. But the simple pointed truths which fell from his divine lips soon caused his hearers to forget his appearance and to be charmed, not with a man, but with the doctrine he taught. Sometimes you and I are a little bit envious. I mean, come on, let's be honest. We see people walk by us and say, Man, why was I born the way I was? Look at Jesus. When he came, there was nothing. In fact, he was almost uninviting. Like, please. The God of the universe laid it all aside. No beauty that we should desire him. No physical attraction. Let's also be honest. There's some people that we, you know, I, I'd like to follow that woman. I'd like to follow that guy. Hey, a bit of charisma there. Nothing. Zero. We had our annual staff retreat uh, this last week, and we were discussing Jim Symbol, uh, I mean uh, Jim Collins, his book Good to Great. And in the first chapter of his book, he talks about level five leadership. The greatest companies in a, in the United States they have found are led by level five leaders. Level five leaders are noted for their profound modesty and humility. I mean, it's the exact opposite that you would expect from a great company. They're known for their humility. And so we're sitting here in, in our in our staff circle, kind of ruminating on that. Thinking that, you know, Jesus was classic level five, wasn't he? He operated out of personal modesty and humility. And in fact, Tim Nixon, Pastor Tim, who was on the, uh, on the roster with me uh, today, Tim pipes up and says, hey, wait, you know, that's absolutely true. Because you think about it, when John the Baptist is trying to show Jesus to his disciples, he has to keep saying, hey, guys, I, I know it doesn't look like this. There he is. He keeps saying it over and over. Behold, look, it. there he is. Look, look. There was nothing in Christ that said, wow, a leader, I want to follow that man. Zero. Zero. But we just read, his appearance was uninviting. There was no beauty that we should desire him. And if that was true of Christ as a man, it had to have certainly been true of Christ the child. No halo to identify him. So how do they know? Here's the question. How do they know to bow down? Go back to, uh, go back to, to chapter 2, verse 11. And when they had come into the house. See, why does this happen? They saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down. They fell down and worshipped him. The Greek word for fell down is pipto. Very interesting word. It means going from an erect position, posture, going erect to, to prostrate with your forehead pressed against the earth as an expression of profound reverence. In fact, Matthew will use the same word a little later in the gospel story when Satan comes in the third temptation in the wilderness. Do you remember that third temptation? Fall down and worship me and no Calvary. You can have the whole planet. Satan is begging for Christ to pipto. Fall to his face. What Christ refused to do before Satan, the wise men freely did before the Christ. How's that read? And they fell down and worshipped him. I want you to just kind of, come on, just for a moment, wrap your mind around that scene. And remember, it's pitch black. Maybe a torch somewhere flickering. The Arab kings find themselves in the dark. It's been night. They only travel at night, remember. The star has stopped in Bethlehem. It's pointing to this cable stave behind Bethlehem's inn. Obediently, I don't know how that light pointed, but obediently they step into the dank, dark 
barnyard cave of odiferous domesticated animals, enclosed space, enclosed body odor, mammal halitosis would be reason enough for some of us to wish, to, can, can I stay out in the fresh air? You guys let me know what you find in there and tell me. One could be forgiven for thinking. You think about the wise men. Now put yourself in their place. One could be forgiven for thinking. We have been following the star for weeks for this. I mean, one would be tempted to wonder if one of the wise men said, Hey guys, stay right here. I'm going to go back out. I've got to make sure that this star is pointing down on this thing. Is it down on here? No royal entourage. No government dignitaries, no accoutrements of majesty, nothing but a hole in the side of a hill. Two parents and a baby. And the baby's parents, as far as these, uh, these Arab kings, these Arab scholars can tell in the glow of that single flickering torch, they appear to be two very, very humble peasant people. Whom you would never ID out of a police lineup if you were asked to pick. Please pick the mother and stepfather of God, Almighty God. Pick them out of this ID line. You never would have picked them. And the baby, this newborn that they have been traveling for mile after mile across hot and cold desert sand. The baby isn't even in a bed or a cradle. The parents have fluffed up a box of cow feet into a makeshift bassinet. That's all it is. No halo. The infant wrapped in strips of unsterile, dirty cloths to keep the baby warm in the night air chill of that cave. There is nothing that physically says... This is the one. Nothing. And yet the record reads, and this is what, I tell you what astounds my wondering soul this Christmas. The record reads, look at it there in verse 11. And when they saw the child with Mary his mother, they fell down and worshipped him. They are on their faces before the baby Jesus in worship of God. Hey guys, please, please explain this to me. Explain this to me. Just a few days later, these very same parents, they don't dress, the, the, the very same parents will present this very same newborn child in Jerusalem's holy temple for the requisite Levitical dedication of the firstborn male child. And the priest will pick up that very same baby and hold him in his clerical arms without a solitary premonition that he has divine majesty within his, within his embrace. What's the difference? Nothing's changed. How shall we explain it? Be wise men. You know what? It is the shining truth about the wise men. And that is the heart can see what the mind will not. And therein, my friends, lies the compelling truth of the Christmas story, the grand story of Christmas. For you see, everybody else in the Christmas story looked upon that baby with their mind and decided it cannot be. But it was these children of the East who gazed upon them with their heart and concluded, it must be He. Their heart could see what the mind would not. The heart can see what the mind will not. Which is why, by the way, Israel's great Shema opens with the line, You shall love the Lord your God with all your what? With all your what? With all your heart. Heart first. The heart must lead. For when the heart leads, the mind will follow. But the heart must lead, for the heart can see what the mind will not.
which is why the wise men worshipped when the rest did not. I got up early this morning and was reading Desire of Ages, and I came across these words after the uh, manuscript was written. We slipped them in just a moment ago. I want to put them on the screen for you. Desire of Ages, that classic on the life of Jesus. Look at this. Beneath the lowly guise of Jesus, the wise men recognized the presence of divinity. They gave their hearts to Him as their Savior. What a faith was theirs! Exclamation mark. Wow. The heart can see, but the mind will not. By the way, that's a word of hope. And promise for those of you who, even in this season of Christmas joy, are troubled by a numinous uncertainty in your soul. Some of you are looking to the future today. Your future looks dark, as black as the night over Bethlehem. You are not sure of what lies ahead for you. And it feels for you, it feels like the guiding star has vanished from your sky. You struggle to know the will of God in your life. Your mind is fatigued. Your emotions are exhausted and your spirit confused. In this midnight of your own soul, learn the lesson of the wise men, please. Learn the lesson of the wise men. The heart can see what the mind will not. So, my friend, listen to your heart. Just listen to your heart. Listen. Listen to your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. He will direct your path. The star is still there, I am sure, in your life. The star is still there. Listen to your heart. For as the wise men have shown us all, it is only when we worship the Christ with all our hearts, even in the dark, or perhaps especially in the dark. It's only then that God's dream will follow and His way for our future will be made plain. For then being warned, divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. There is another way for you that you have not yet considered. Listen to your heart this Christmas. Listen to your heart. God has that other way. And you will see it. You will see it one day. Just listen. Listen to your heart. Let me conclude now, as I often like to do on this Christmas Sabbath. I find a great story for the Christmas season. This is the place where I choose to slip it in. So I'm going to read to you Tom Dowling's story. It's entitled The Beast. Once came the title for this Christmas homily today. The Beast. Listen to this. He was the ugliest of men. And he had a request that seemed completely unacceptable. He came to my desk holding the job application in his huge hand. I asked him to be seated, and his giant bulk filled the chair. Here was the ugliest man I had ever seen, and his presence made me uneasy. I, I had never seen anyone so physically repulsive. And to think that he was applying for a job at the department store seemed completely unacceptable. In my ten years as personnel manager, I'd seen all kinds of applicants, but this was extraordinary to say the least. 
But in response to my questions, his voice was surprisingly gentle. More more sincere than most, and at the same time more anxious. His application stated that he was employed by a carnival, which was presently set up on the outskirts of town. You're already employed, I said to him. So why is it that you'd like this temporary job at the store? Well, sir, he replied, it's just the kind of job I've always wanted. Uh, There may be many applicants for the job, I told him. The competition is very keen. I know that, he answered. His beady eyes searching mine. But I'm willing to take the job without pay, and the hours won't conflict with my job at the carnival. Well, I said finally, if you should get the position, you'll be paid at the advertised rate. He shrugged his gigantic shoulders. I'd still want it if it paid nothing. I've never wanted anything more, sir. Never in my whole life. I dismissed him then, advising him that he would be considered fairly along with the other applicants. At the door, he turned and thanked me, his great ugly face sending shudders through me. And for the rest of the day, I could not forget him. When sheer repulsiveness comes into your life, it's not easily forgotten. But there was more to this man than his pitiful, frightening features. His sincerity, his desperation clung to my memory. And I was determined that he, as one of God's creatures, was entitled to a fair opportunity. Perhaps I was being foolish, reckless even, to consider him. But there was nothing else I could do and still call myself a human being just as he was. All that night, I couldn't sleep. I kept thinking about this poor, unfortunate creature who must have experienced great hardships in his lifetime because of his ugliness. I kept trying to imagine how disappointing life must have been for him, how frustrating, how loveless. Just the sight of him incurred loathing and banishment. He had to be an outcast, a target for ridicule to the apathetic and the uncompassionate of the world. The next day, I decided... I decided I had to see him in his own environment, so I went to the carnival grounds feeling like a spy... It was something I had to do before I decided which applicant would get the seasonal job. I had to see for myself what type of work this man with the beast-like features and the angel-like voice did. After some searching and questioning, I was directed to a tent over which hung a sign reading, The Human Question Mark Beast. Not wanting to think much about this distasteful announcement, I bought a ticket, went inside, and stood in the back row of a large group of curious people. At last, the lights dimmed and a spotlight played on a crudely built stage. In a few minutes, he emerged from behind a curtain. Gas of horror rose from the crowd. Children screamed. And mothers, who should have known better than to bring them in there in the first place, hugged them to their breasts. He was painted unearthly colors. And his great bulk was bent under the weight of chains which surrounded his massive body. Back and forth across the stage he ride, uttering deep guttural groans and the snarls of a caged animal. He was indeed the beast he played. And my heart ached for this man who had sat before me only yesterday and pleaded for an escape, no matter how brief, from this agonizing role he played before a jeering and ridiculing mob of thrill-seekers. The only time he seemed to break out of the frightening character was each time someone would hustle a child from the tent. His sad eyes followed the children with sheer, unmistakable anguish. I waited until the tent was emptied, then made my way inside the curtain and I found him. He looked at me in shame. I wish you hadn't come here, he said in that soft voice. I wish... 
If you still want the job, I said to him, it's yours. His giant head nodded in disbelief. Oh, yes, 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 I do. Then be at the store tomorrow afternoon at four, I said. And again, the great head nodded and I left. Next day, because of other duties, I, was, I wasn't able to be at the store when he started on the job. I arrived at 6 o'clock and went directly to the toy department. And there he was, surrounded by a great multitude of delighted children. The expressions on their faces told me that I had not made a mistake. The face which had brought jeers and hoots from so many others so many times in his life at the carnivals was now hidden behind a white beard. And his huge frame clothed in the red and white suit of Santa Claus. The eyes which had chilled people to the bone were no longer sad, but filled with tears of joy as he took one child after another onto his lap, playing for them the wonderful friend of children they all loved and trusted. The end. It's true, isn't it? It's true. The heart can see what the mind will not. Then let us look with all our hearts this Christmas. And we too, I believe, we too shall see Him whom to see and know is life eternal.